welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. A victory for privacy advocates at the Supreme Court today. In a 5-4 to four decision, the court ruled that states can start. Oh, I'm, I'm, uh, we're talking about uh, the victory where the Supreme Court has ruled that cell phone carriers are going to need a warrant to um, to get the records from their customers. Joining us is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Hi, Greg. I had yesterday's opinion. There were just too many opinions coming down. <laughs> Let's talk about this. The chief wrote the opinion, and he really seemed to have a bead on our compulsive carrying of cell phones. Tell us more about his reasoning. Yeah, so his reasoning is, uh, you know, the ubiquity of, of cell phones. We all have them. We all carry them. And they provide an incredible amount of information uh, to our cell phone company, even if we're not necessarily thinking we're, we're giving information to our cell phone company. And in particular, uh, this case is about the fact that our cell phone companies, when we make a call or, or end a call, they, in their, in their towers, keep the information about where that call began and end, ended. And that information can be used and with increasing accuracy to, to show where a person is. And so in this case, where the question was whether the government uh, could get about four months' worth of data showing the location of a, of a robbery suspect's phone, uh, whether that uh, was, was uh, such, whether he had a privacy interest in that information that was protected by the Fourth Amendment and that required the, the uh, government to get a warrant and the Supreme Court said, yes, uh, the government does have to get a warrant. The records are collected and held by a private company, not the government. Did the chief adjust that, address that in his opinion? <laughs> Yeah, so, so the, the court in, in a few cases from several decades ago established what, what people call the third party doctrine. Uh, that says if you, um, provide information to a third party, uh, like your bank records, you're, you're giving information to your bank, they're in the hands of a third party, um, that you are, uh, giving up your privacy interest in them to a, at least a large degree. You don't have the same interest you would have if you, uh, you know, kept all your money uh, under your mattress, uh, and the, the the court in this case um, said, in part, location information is different because there's so much of it as as we were discussing before, and it tells you so much about uh, a, a person. It can reveal you know things about uh, you know you know the he said. Uh, revealing not only your particular movements, but through them, your fam- familial, familial, political, professional, religious, and sexual associations. Just a wealth of information, and the court has been in the past and was in this case very protective of that information. Yeah, the chief joined with the four liberal justices to make up the majority here. Why the split in this case when the court, as you said, has leaned toward protecting privacy in tech cases for some time now? Yeah, and the chief has really been in the vanguard of that. So one interesting aspect of this split, so Justice Gorsuch was a dissenter, but uh, when you start looking at his, uh, his opinion, um, he could w- very well have been concurring. He said he doesn't like the way the court has analyzed all these cases in the past. He would sort of blow everything up, but he would focus on a notion of, of property rights. And in his mind, the way he expressed it in his, his uh, dissenting opinion was that um, had they only argued that this was a matter of property rights, that you still have a property right in this information, 
information about uh, uh, where your, uh, your cell phone has been. I might have uh, sided with the defendant in this case, but since he didn't raise that issue, I'm going to dissent. So in a future case, it could actually be a 6-3 split instead of a 5-4 split. So Roberts called the ruling a narrow one, but does it have any implications for digital privacy rights? For example, information that's stored in the cloud. Yeah, it certainly could. So uh, there's an aspect of this ruling that that makes it you know, suggest that location information is different than anything else. Uh, but no question, uh, the idea that uh, this third party doctrine is an absolute rule uh, that idea is is out the window, at least as an absolute rule when it comes to digital data. So we will probably in the future have more cases that determine, uh, well, you know, what about the information your smart thermostat provides to your electric company? What about information your fitness tracker uh, provides uh, to to the company that made the app or, or something like that? All those will be dealt with on a case-by-case basis, it seems, going forward. And the court's reasoning, reasoning in this case and its, its uh, broad protections for privacy rights, no doubt, will come into one thing that uh, question I had in my mind after seeing this: it, What about the the telephone numbers that you dial that police can get access to very easily? You know, the, all the phone calls that people make on their cell phone are that is that protected? Um, that that has always been the case. So, so one of these decades-old decisions, one in 1979, said that the numbers you dial are not constitutionally protected. That decision stands. Uh, that that is viewed differently than this information uh, about where you are. Okay, so it's, it's, it seems to cross a line there, but there are a lot of distinctions. Now, um, th- what's interesting is that this Supreme Court ruling won't necessarily overturn the conviction of the plaintiff here. Yeah, so the case goes back there, and, and you know, the, the government had a lot of evi- evidence in this case. So this is, uh, uh, Mr. Carpenter was accused of taking part in a string of robberies of uh, Radio Shacks and, of all things, uh, T-Mobile stores. And um, the, the government had a lot of, of other uh, evidence about him. Uh, there is a question as to whether he would, have the con- conviction, he would have been convicted even without this location data. So it's going back to the lower court to consider those issues, and it's entirely possible uh, that his uh, conviction will stand, notwithstanding this uh, very important ruling. So let's look forward to the end of the term next week. That's How all are I they do, going June. To... <laughs> I know this is the toughest week for you all year, but uh, and you deserve a vacation after it. But so how they're going to get out all these opinions in a week? Yeah, we have six more opinions. We don't know how many more opinion days. Uh, biggest one, uh, uh, or at least uh, the one that's most closely watched, is the Trump travel ban. There's this case that's been sitting out there seemingly forever involving mandatory fees paid by to yes. unions by public sector workers. Second time and that's been argued, too. It's the second time that one has been argued. The conventional wisdom has always been that um, the court was poised to say that workers have a First Amendment right to not pay those fees. Um, and then uh, a couple years ago, Justice Scalia died and, and took away the fifth vote for that that ruling. Um, and now it's back. Justice Gorsuch seems to be poised to cast the pivotal vote. He didn't a- a- ask any questions during argument, but 
um, the, the conventional wisdom, which is sometimes wrong, and the conventional wisdom is that he will side with his fellow conservatives and say there is a First Amendment right, um, but obviously it's, it's uh, the opinion that's taking some time, so uh, we'll just have to see next week. Exactly. We'll get some rest this weekend, Greg. <laughs> that's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Starr. We'll have all those decisions for you next week. It's a stressing time of year for the largest U.S. banks. They're being tested by the Federal Reserve. But all 35 big banks cleared the first hurdle of this year's stress test, showing they could withstand a severe economic downturn, although not each one cleared the bar by a comfortable margin. Former Federal Reserve Governor Daniel Cerullo said on Bloomberg TV this morning that the stress tests are working. If you compare where the U.S. banks are today with where European banks are today, I think the, the strategy of making them recapitalize quickly and then getting capital up further has really paid off. Joining me is Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell Law School. Bob, tell us how the stress tests actually work. Hi, June. Yeah, sure. So uh, basically the idea is to see how a bank's uh, capital levels and its liquidity performance would fare under a stressful scenario, a sort of system-wide scenario that would ordinarily imperil the banks. The way the way to think about this, I think, is, is basically as follows. Think of a bank as having liabilities on the one hand and assets on the other. What you want to do is to minimize the likelihood that any losses on the asset side of the balance sheet would ever be transmitted to uh, those who are the beneficiaries of the liability side of the balance sheet. In other words, you don't want it to be the case that if the bank loses some of what it owns, that it somehow loses its capacity to pay what it owes, right? And the way you do that is basically by imposing a so-called capital buffer of one kind or another and imposing liquidity buffers uh, as well, which basically minimize the likelihood that losses on the asset side of the balance sheet would be transmitted over to the liability side. Now, the reason, the way the stress tests fit into this is they basically put together scenarios under which there might be a system-wide problem that would result in some of the assets on the bank's asset portfolios going bad. And that could be defaulting loans, it could be underperforming loans, it could be underperforming assets of other kinds. Basically, the idea is that a bank's assets are going to underperform if the economy as a whole faces some sort of severe turbulence. And so you want to see how they would fare in a scenario like that, basically with a view to minimizing the likelihood that any of those losses would go to those that the banks owe. What's your opinion of how the stress tests are working? Do you agree with Tarullo that they're working well? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Dan that they're working well and that they were a good idea. Uh, that being said, I think that they could work even better if they weren't fraught with a particular danger. And this is a danger that inheres less in the tests, I think, than in the sort of culture around the tests. What I mean by that is this. When a bank actually does fare well under the tests, there's a tendency to think, well, everything is fine now, right? We're not going to have a repeat of what happened in 2008. Therefore, let the banks pay out more in the way of dividends, let them engage in more stock buybacks, let them think of themselves as more profitable, and so forth. That's exactly the wrong way to think. I think it's good to feel a certain sense of relief when they pass, because remember, passing these is the bare minimum. That doesn't mean that everything is great and everything's kind of smelling or coming up roses. Uh, It just means that, well, at least it doesn't look, as far as we can tell, like we're going to have a repeat of 2008. But that's a pretty damn low bar, if you think about it. Um, So what we really ought to be thinking about, it seems to me, is when they pass the stress tests, 
we say, good, that's great. But now what, what do we do to prevent a false sense of security setting in as a result of that actual passing of the test? Because that's what tends to happen in the financial cycle. So then do you agree with regular or do you disagree with regulators who are working for Trump that has suggested that in June that the test be cut back to every two years and that lenders with sufficient capital cushions be dropped out altogether? I couldn't disagree more uh, with those who suggest that. I think this is exactly the kind of thing, exactly the kind of complacency that tends to, to set in as soon as things look a little bit better than they were. And that's exactly what sets us up for the next fall. You know, the, the, the great uh, financial economist, Simon Minsky, is sort of well-known for um, a lot of quips that he made. But one is that he said stability breeds instability. This is the classic case in point. As soon as you do relatively well on a test, everybody gets complacent. They say, oh, now we can just kind of run around and do whatever the hell we want. Um, and that's exactly what sets you up for the next crisis. So I think it's precisely the wrong lesson to be drawn from what happened or what, what turned up yesterday. And my guess is that things will probably look pretty good next week in the second round as well. And again, the danger then is going to be uh, increased or heightened complacency, more stock buybacks, more dividends for shareholders. And all of that is very, very dangerous because we're really at the top, I think, of a, of a sort of, uh, or the peak of a sort of uh, boom cycle at the moment. I think uh, there's probably more turbulence down the road. And this is not the time then for banks to be depleted their uh, reserves. Goldman Sachs, Sachs, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley had the two lowest capital levels on one mm-hmm. key measure yesterday. Mm-hmm. Do you mm-hmm. buy their explanations or excuses for that? No, I think they're kind of comical, to tell you the truth. I mean, I don't want to be too much of a naysayer here, but if you think about it, uh, stress tests are not only about how would the bank fare in a systemic crisis or in the midst of some sort of systemic turbulence. They're also about, well, how good are the bank's own internal risk measures? And if Goldman and if Morgan Stanley came up with different results in the Fed and indeed rosier results in the Fed, that suggests to me that their stress tests, um, their own sort of internal models, I should say, are inadequate, that they're overly optimistic. And as we all know, that's something that bank models are prone to be. That's exactly what they were in the lead up to 2008. That's exactly what they're likely to be now, because think about what the incentives are for the bank. Of course, the bank wants to be able to say it's going to do well in the crisis. That encourages more people to invest in those banks, more people to deposit in those banks or make use of their services or whatever. So it's actually kind of disturbing if the Fed, with all the expertise that it has and all the stress testing it does of multiple institutions, comes up with one result and then two banks come up with much rosier results for themselves, that's a pretty bad sign about their risk cultures uh, internally. And I think that um, the fact that they're sort of finding fault with the Fed's uh, measures and that they're disagreeing is at least prima facie evidence that they're a bit too cavalier and ought to be looked at more carefully. Always great to have your insights, Bob. That's Robert Hockett, professor at Cornell Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.